When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Gabby Reese, and welcome to the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. My guest today is Dr. Stephen Gundry, cardiologist, heart surgeon, medical researcher, and author. You know some of his past works, like Plant Paradox. And today, we're going to be discussing his latest book, Unlocking the Keto Code. I really enjoyed this book because... You know, I'm interested in being in ketosis or having that ability, and it's it's pretty, frankly, it's pretty hard to do. And in some ways, it's not, not only is it not sustainable, it may not even really be the healthiest. And I think as, as I certainly get further into these conversations, what I'm, what I'm always learning and being reminded of is metabolic flexibility. That yes, you would love to be burning your body stored fat, but if you eat a carb, you know, that doesn't throw you into death spiral or bump you out of ketosis. And what Dr. Gundry does is explain to you, first of all, what is ketosis? And also what are all the things that signal the mitochondria to uncouple, which is really one of the most beneficial things that happen while we're in ketosis. So the goal isn't, I never eat a carb, you know, I only eat proteins. It's really a difficult way to live. The idea is get as much information as you can to understand all the ways that you can positively impact your health. And that's, you know, even one of the things that signal it is when you fast. So he breaks it all down. He shares it. There's a ton of research. We get into not only ketosis and a deep discussion about mitochondria uncoupling, but we also talk quite a bit about the microbiome. I learned a lot as usual, and I hope you enjoy. Dr. Gundry, thank you for coming to my home. Thanks first of all. for having me. And um, I just want to say that Plant Paradox um, changed the way uh, I made dinner. My husband would say things like, are those Luctans? <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to tackle Dr. Gundry when I meet him finally. But um, I just appreciate, I, I'm just curious, as somebody who has your background, going from one practice in medicine, what was the impetus for you to say, hey, I want to get into education and communication? Well, I actually was an educator as a heart surgeon. I spent actually 50% of my time going around the world teaching heart surgeons and uh, on techniques that I in invented. Mm -hmm. So that was no no change for me. But it was but that's so it's very specific like you have this skill and this gift and this expertise and you were teaching it to other people. Right. But you really broaden out for the rest of us. Oh yeah. Um you know, my life changed in 1995 when I met a guy called Big Ed. I uh, met a guy? <laughs> yeah. I met a guy uh, who changed my life. Boy, that sounds really weird. Um, you know, Big Ed was had inoperable coronary artery disease. All his blood vessels were clogged up, and he was 48 years old, and you couldn't put stents in his blood vessels because there were too many blockages, and you couldn't do bypasses because there wasn't any place to jump past. And... This poor guy went around the country uh, looking for some idiot, you know, like me, to operate on him. And these 
these would go to different centers. And so Big Ed had gone around the country for six months looking for somebody to take him on. And everybody turned him down. And he ended up in my office at Loma Linda University. And I looked at his video of his heart arteries and I said, you know, I don't like to turn people down, but, you know, everybody's right. There's nothing we can do for you. And he says, yeah, yeah, that's what I hear. But here's the deal. I've been on a diet for six months while going around to see all you guys. And I've lost 45 pounds in six months. And now this is a big guy still. He was 265 pounds when I met him, Big Ed. And he says, I've also been taking a bunch of supplements from a health food store. And he actually brings in this giant shopping bag of supplements. And, you know, I'm scratching my professor beard. And I said, well, Wait, I have I, a question. I have a question. At this moment, were you yourself, because a lot of times you'll see in medical practices, and it's not on the a knock on the medical community, but there's only so much time. I always joke that they're like, you know, doctors are fixing you and then they're serving you jello and pancakes in the hospital with corn yes. syrup. Mm -hmm. Were you sort of connected to lifestyle already at that point? Or were you, I mean, it would be hard are to be both. Are you kidding? I was running 30 miles a week, doing 5K, 10K, half marathons on the weekends, going to the gym one hour a day, and get this. I was a Clydesdale runner. I was obese. I had, yeah, I had hypertension, pre-diabetes, arthritis so bad I had to wear braces on my knees to run, and I operated on baby heart transplants with migraine headaches. And yet I was doing all these things correctly, and everything I did was actually wrong. Right. So, okay, so, how, so let's get back to Big Ed. So what happened... What it obviously so what Big happened? Ed showed you, learned, taught you something. Yeah. So Big Ed said, so I told him, like, he's like, you know, good for you for losing weight, but, you know, that's not going to do anything in your arteries. And I said, and I know what you did with all those supplements. You made expensive urine. You wasted your money. And I thoroughly believe that. Yeah. And he said, well, look, you know, I've come all this way. He was from Florida. And he said, couldn't we do another angiogram, another movie of my heart? Maybe, you know, maybe. And I say, yeah, okay, you know, rolling my eyes. So he did. And in six months' time, this guy cleans out 50% of the blockages in his coronary arteries. They're gone. And I go, I, I've never seen anything like that. That's impossible, but I'm a researcher. So I said, hey, tell me about this diet you've been on. And he starts telling me what he eats. And I go, wait a minute, you know, time out. As an undergraduate at Yale back in the dark ages, we could make our own major. We could design a major and we could defend a thesis. So my thesis was you could take a great ape, manipulate its food supply, manipulate its environment, and prove you would arrive at a human being. And I actually defended my thesis, got an honors, and gave it to my parents and went away to become a famous heart surgeon. So... As big as talking about this, I said, wait a minute, that's my thesis, you know, from Yale. Okay. And I said, that's amazing. And he said, now, let me look at those supplements. So I'm digging through the supplements. And he said, how'd you decide to do these? And he said, oh, I just went to the health food store. And they said, oh, you know, you ought to, ought to use that and you ought to use that. And I said, so you didn't research? No, no, they just told me to take this. So I was very famous for keeping hearts alive during heart surgery and transplantation. And I designed a bunch of techniques and stuff that's still used. And we would put interesting things down the veins and arteries of the hearts to protect them during heart surgery. 
And so I'm looking through his stuff, and a lot of the stuff I'm putting down the veins and arteries of the heart, Big Ed is taking. Mm. Now, I never thought about swallowing the dumb things. So after Big Ed, I called my parents and I said, hey, do you still have my thesis? And they said, you know, it's here in the shrine. Yeah. Of course. And, and said, Our favorite son. Uh -huh. Send it up. <laughs> so I put myself on my thesis and I started taking a bunch of supplements that I had been pushing down the arteries of hearts. Mm -hmm. And I lost 50 pounds my first year. And I subsequently lost another 20 and have kept it off for 27 years. And so what I did next was I would operate on patients and then teach them how to eat and tell them to go to Costco or Trader Joe's and get supplements. And there wasn't any Amazon. And we started seeing all these crazy things happen. Their high blood pressure went away. Their diabetes went away. Their arthritis went away, like me. Um, so after a year of doing this at Loma Linda, I had an epiphany one Friday morning before going to work. And I said... I've got this all wrong. I shouldn't operate on people and then teach them how to eat to avoid me later. Mm. I should teach them how to eat so they'll never have to use me in the first place. Yeah. Now, for a heart surgeon, that's a very bad career choice. Well, it's it's a weird step down, right? Like you're a heart surgeon. There's so there's a lot of you know respect and sort of framework around this title. And I'd be interested to know if your wife, because when you bring this idea home, is your wife on board? And is she like, I think this is an amazing idea. I mean, I'd love to know because it's, it is, it's a complete switch. Yeah. Well, um, first of all, my, my wife was, was a marathon runner um, who I finally convinced her to give it up because uh, it's yeah, it's brutal on your really joints. Really bad. It's more than brutal on your joints. It's well, brutal on your everything. On your well, your tire. heart. But I mean, story. every endurance athlete we know, the forget it. The heart. Yeah, is in you it's know, in trouble. Okay. And don't get me started on the skin. We can talk about gravity about that later. Okay. So anyhow, she said, "Well, you know, uh, I'm I'm in it for the run, and you know, you got to be happy in what you do." And if you're not happy in what you do now, subsequently, when we went through a number of very hard years, because um, you don't make any money teaching people to eat, um, you know, she soldiered on and, you know, she said, you know, you know, I said, you know, hey, I can quit this. I can go, you know, get a professorship someplace else and, you know, we'll do this again. She said, no, we're, we're in this. You're in this. You know, you're. Look what you're doing. Look what you're learning. And we're in this. Where did you get guidance on the food part, especially the first year? I'm curious how you, where you got some guidance to give them a curriculum to even follow. So uh, as my wife will tell you, I voraciously read the literature for probably three to four hours a day, every day. And so I just, you know, I have that ability, like I had in heart surgery, that I would go down rabbit holes until I found, you know, uh, an answer that I was looking for. And usually people are looking in the wrong places. And so, And it's very confusing. And this is what I really appreciate about your new book, Unlocking the Keto Code, is you make this very straightforward. And I want to I wanna dive right into to the book and to really talking about uh, mitochondria and uncoupling because I feel like you went further down the route of the, what ketosis is, you got to the root of it and explained it in a way that was, um, I, I think for all of us, it's it's 
it not only makes a lot of sense, but it's like, oh, I can put that into practice into my life. Because for a lot of people, getting being in ketosis is virtually impossible. Correct. Yeah. Well, I want to say um, before we move into this that I, I really appreciate um, you sharing that story because I think a lot of us will be going down a path, whatever our occupation and job is, and we have bills and we have responsibilities and we have children and we have titles. We're fancy. You know, it's like, oh, you're that guy, the heart surgeon. Um, we have identity. And to be willing to say, hey, I'm going to follow an unknown path because it feels right and you know, like the right thing to do. And you can only know that once you've had the practice. You, yeah. you wouldn't have been in school and then go, hey, avoid being a cardiologist. Why don't you just teach people how to eat? You'd be like, no. That I, I really appreciate that message because I think a lot of people go through this. And to hear someone like you who was established and, and brilliant uh, have challenges, it's, I think it's just really important for people to be reminded that it's worth it. And sometimes it's most likely not going to be easy. Yeah, it's uh, you're not going to get through the the hard times without actually you know commitment that you believe in what you're doing. And you know, thankfully for my patients, you know, I you know I viewed my patients as my research project. And so, you know, every three months we'd get blood work on them, and we'd change foods that we wanted them to avoid, or we'd see what happens when they reintroduce foods, and we'd actually see what happens if they took a supplement from Costco or Trader Joe's and then they stopped it for one reason or another and we could actually see it on their blood work or they could feel it. And so I started writing papers about this and said, look at this, this stuff isn't expensive urine or look at this, you know, when we take, you know, certain foods away from people, you know, why are they getting better? And so that makes you go, well, what is it in those foods that is so mischievous? And actually that's where the whole lectin concept yeah, from. you and your lectins. Me and my lectins. I mean, you know, Laird's like, I mean, literally, he would say that at dinner. Are, are those, I'm not eating lectins. I was like, oh, my God. Thank you, Dr. Gundry. But listen, great education. We've been at this a long time. And it was like, okay, there's another way to prepare it. Yeah, or exactly. Or avoid it yeah. altogether. Um, you know, the, the thing you were saying, too, about, uh, about your wife, you know, that's another thing, too, that feels that, that's really great when you have a partner. It's like, hey, I believe in you and and uh, what you're doing, and and that's that's important. So, the book. Uh, let's let's start from the top. I'll I'll just kind of breeze over some of the things that uh, felt really uh, valuable for people. So, you were talking about. Let's just go right to the microbiome okay. because that seems like a, a important starting point. So for you, if you have a patient come in, you want to make sure, let's see, do they have leaky gut? Is, is their microbiome functioning correctly? Do they have any overgrowth? Things like that. So how do you tackle some of the, just the basics when people hear this and they go, okay, I want to dive in, but I need a starting point. Well, so um, Hippocrates 2,500 years ago said all disease begins in the gut. And how he knew that 2,500 years ago with all of, without all of our sophisticated tests is remarkable. Uh, interestingly, I, I have a fairly new patient who's a Buddhist scholar, and we were talking about this, and he says, you know, I went back and read the Sanskrit test of the Buddha, and he said, it turns out that Buddha was a contemporary of Hippocrates, um, you know, West and Eastern medicine. And he said, Buddha actually wrote that enlightenment comes from the intestines. And I'm going, holy 
cow. You know, mm. Hippocrates says it one way, Buddha says it the other way, but these guys both knew 2,500 years ago that, you know, the gut is all important. And I paraphrase Hippocrates to say all disease begins in a leaky gut and all disease ends when the gut is sealed. And that's what I've seen in my practice now and for 25 years. So to answer your question, if you walk in with, you choose the complaint. Um, you choose the that's complaint right. and it's coming from your gut, number one. And as I talked about in The Plant Paradox and expand on this book, we, particularly in the West, our gut microbiome, which is this incredible 10,000 different species, 100 trillion little organisms, is you know the things that are manipulating everything that happens to us, number one, yeah. and they're the first line of defense against the things we eat. Um, plants do not want to be eaten. They have a life. And... They don't want their babies eaten except on certain circumstances, and they will protect themselves, and they're chemists of incredible ability. I mean, they can turn sunlight into matter. We, we haven't figured out how to do that yet. Right. So they use chemical warfare, biological warfare against us. Now, we have an amazing defense system against these plant toxins, including our microbiome. We actually have a microbiome that loves to eat lectins. They love gluten. And gluten's a lectin, by the way. Right. And they just think gluten's the best thing that ever happened to them. The problem is because of our antibiotic use that we use personally and the antibiotics we feed our animals yeah. and Monsanto patenting Roundup as an antibiotic, I like to remind people, Roundup was patented as an antibiotic glyphosate. Mm -hmm. We have destroyed this defense against plant toxins, number one. And we know now that we're supposed to have this incredible tropical rainforest of diversity in our gut where one species talks to the other species, one species produces something that the other species needs to eat to do its thing. Mm -hmm. And we've, it's been a forest fire. And you here in Malibu and me up in Montecito know all about what forest fires do. Yeah. Um, our home was destroyed in the fire at Montecito. Oh, and I'm sorry. You probably got pretty close here. And, no, my husband stayed and fought the fire. Yeah. That's why the house is here. I was wondering why it's still here. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, and you know what's interesting when you talk about the microbiome? Um, I think it was like 10% human or a book like that where it talked about that there's things that our body doesn't even have because it's sort of you know, delegated to different things and, and bacterias that there's a cooperation there. So we don't need to do it. So they take over. And it's just a fascinating and also confusing. I think for a lot of people, people go, oh, gut health. And it's it's it feels for a lot of people either they're disconnected from it, like they don't really see the importance, or they don't know how to start. When someone goes, well, you might be allergic to garlic. That's always my favorite. I'm like, people hear that and they think, okay. I don't even know how to begin. Well, that's a good that's a good way to think about this. Um, number one, uh, one of the things we've learned about leaky gut is that you could have a great collection of friendly bacteria in your gut, but if you've produced gaps in the wall of your gut, literal gaps, you have leaky gut, 
even good bacteria should stay on their side of the fence. And good bacteria that get across the fence are viewed as invading bacteria. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times I spend less time on worrying about the composition of the bacteria and far more time worrying about, okay, what were the agents that actually caused the leaky gut? Mm -hmm. And so... Um, Can stress... Yes. Blow holes in your in your gut. Yeah, I'm absolutely. just curious. No, uh, women have taught me that uh, a what, lot. You mean they've stressed you out because you have daughters and a wife no, or yeah, female no. patients? And I have three female I'm joking. Dogs. Well, you know they say we're. <laughs> what is it they say we're more prone to negative emotion, right? Because we worry more. We the sort of the way our brains work. You're um, caretakers. Yeah, right? it's just a different. You know, we hold it in. I think a lot of times mostly men feel comfortable going like, you know, and just letting it out. And we're sort of like, oh, I have to be composed. And it, Well, and you guys have a gut sense um, that mm, men don't. And yeah. yeah, women, particularly a lot of my women with autoimmune disease can, can point to the day. Like an event? That their, yeah, that their autoimmune disease started. And it was often a stressful event. Um, so like a divorce or something. A divorce, a, kid a, just sudden, a sudden death, death of a mother or a child. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, those divorce is a real great way to get leaky gut. So people, you can have someone come in and you go, okay, we're going we're gonna to heal your gut. But if it is something where it is stress, let's say it's more stress oriented, is it sort of like, okay, now we're going to put a practice of meditation. Maybe you need to go and um, even figure out how you can sort of get some of this whether it's trauma or what have you, out of the body? Is there, I mean, is there conversations like that? Yeah, I don't. You, Do you get that woo-woo with it? Yeah, no, okay. I don't get that woo-woo with okay. it. But what we do is say, okay. look, the evidence is increasingly clear that most of these negative emotions and stress are actually coming from a lack of proper bacteria in your gut. And so even, you know, Daniel Amen, uh, who's a you know, great psychiatrist, has come around to say, you know, we shouldn't even use the word mental illness anymore. We should actually use a microbiome illness and let's fix the microbiome. Let's fix leaky gut. And it's amazing how many people, I see so many, particularly women, on antidepressants and anti-anxiety agents and sleep agents. And we can wean them off of it in the course of three to six months. And they go, wow, this is nice. This is really great. You mean I'm, you know, I'm not crazy? Well, this is a big deal because I think also if you take, as you take more things on in life or you get older or you're not feeling as well, it's so easy for the mind, the, you know, the meaning maker to be, it's like, oh, well, it's because I'm this old now and it's all this narrative. So I, I, I really appreciate it. So if they walk in, if someone's sitting in Kansas and they don't have access to you, let's say, what would be a good test or starting point to get a clear snapshot of what's going on in their, in their gut? And then how would they, how could we, you know, connect them? How do they find somebody that actually knows what they're doing? I mean, the amazing thing is, you know, when I wrote The Plant Paradox now five years ago, I had a list of about three-page lists of complaints. Right. And um, my editor said, well, wait a minute, you're describing just about everything there is in terms of illnesses. I said, yeah. yeah. And they said, but that can't all be related, you know, to lectins and leaky gut. And I said, well, as a matter of fact, this list is based on my patients. So, you know, I, I can't tell you the number of people with migraines who this is from lectins and leaky gut. I had migraines and yeah. I don't have them anymore. Uh, and I profile some of those people. Yeah, and you probably just thought you were stressed out, yeah. working too hard, 
And that's just the way it is. I'll give you a great story uh, that's actually in one of the books. Um, a young woman developed rheumatoid arthritis after her first baby. And she wanted another child and knew she really didn't want to be on biologic immunosuppressants while carrying a baby. Yeah. Smart. Yeah. So she came to me and said, look, uh, you know, I want to have another baby. I, you know, I want to get rid of my rheumatoid arthritis, you know, without drugs. Can you help me? And I said, yeah, absolutely. You know, let's, let's do this. Well, her husband, who didn't have a problem, said, doggone it, you know, I'm in. We're going to follow this. I'm going to support my wife. Everything we're going to eat is, you know, aimed at getting her better. And her mother, uh, who lived with them, was taking, helping take care of the baby, said, well, doggone it, I'm in. So they had this great thing. So long story short, uh, we her rheumatoid arthritis goes into remission. She gets pregnant, has another baby, does not um, get rheumatoid arthritis again. Often it spikes right after pregnancy. Right. Anyhow, but so we're, we're talking and the husband says, you know, um, I need to tell you this. It probably has nothing to do with it. He says, but, you know, I've had chronic sinus issues all my life. I, I get sinus infections four or five times a year, you know. And he says you know, I don't have sinus issues anymore. You know, isn't that interesting to you? And I said, well, yeah, actually, you see, you're producing mucus in your sinus because the mucus is trying to trap the lectins that you were eating, and now you don't have that anymore. So I would have hoped that that would have happened. And he said, oh. So, That's like, it's, it is, it must amaze you of, in a way how people don't correlate or connect or aren't connected when they eat something and they feel a certain way. You must just be like, oh. Well, the other interesting thing is that um, we're so surrounded by being told that there's a over-the-counter or prescription pharmaceutical to deal with whatever is going on. You got a headache, uh, Advil. Guess what? You got children's Advil. Um, it, wow. And as I talk about in Unlocking the Keto Code, I've told people who listen that an Advil or an Aleve, an ibuprofen, is literally like swallowing a hand grenade. And it blows a literal crater in your, in your gut and produces leaky gut. And I see so many people in sports uh, who have had a sports injury. Um, I have actually a former professional ball player who had an autoimmune disease, but they were you know, drinking, chewing Advil like no tomorrow, and they would develop an autoimmune disease. And they'd go, what the heck? Where'd that come from? And they were blowing holes in, yeah. in their gut. And we, you know, I mean, really, children's Advil? I know. I have <laughs> one of my daughters wasn't feeling good, and I, she's like, I just need a Tylenol. And I was like... Yeah, I don't think we have any. And she's like, that is so weird. I go, I, yeah, I don't think that is weird. I think that's okay. But I, it is interesting because we they're, they're sort of seem very harmless. And pe it is a part of people's everyday lives. Yeah. So let's talk about unlocking the keto code because there is so much useful information. And what I would say is uh, books like this often are workbooks as well because you have all kinds of information in the back that are useful tools and food and recipes and all sorts of information. So um, this is the type of book that is really great to listen to because you get the concepts lectured to and given by you. But I would also say that it, it, there's something to be said for having an actual book that you can go, Oh, what was that recipe? Or what was that? Um, you know, back on, on to it. So first of all, why, obviously your patients were coming to you. We were talking earlier and you said you work still right now, seven days a week, yep. because also 
that's also how you learn. Correct. You're looking at patients, you're seeing new things because also we're in a different world. The foods we have access to, the environment, the stress, who knows, you're probably seeing new and different things just because times change and you learn more. But so you're, you're still always looking at this, but, and, and this is a popular topic, but why did you think, okay, I'm going to really break this down? Well, it all started when I was writing my last book, uh, which was The Energy Paradox. Mm -hmm. And I like to talk a lot about how mitochondria work in that book, or maybe not work. And uh, I, I've had a ketogenic version of my diet in the, for the last 20 years that I used on patients. And the ketogenic version of my book um, has actually a lot of carbohydrates, and yet people do extremely well with it. So as I'm trying in the energy paradox to explain how ketones work and the benefits of ketones, I like to document with research what I say. And here's a paper that backs up what I said. Mm -hmm. you know? And here's a human paper that backs up what I said. So I was you know, looking through some human papers to back up what I say that ketones are you know this amazing fuel and it's the preferred fuel for your body and you it makes you energy efficient and you become a fat burning machine i love that title Isn't that thing? i love that <laughs> people so, love that yeah so so i'm looking at the research that came out of the nih with richard beach and mm -hmm. with at uh, harvard with george cahill and in humans mm -hmm. and i'm going wait a minute um what I and all the keto experts are saying is actually 180 degrees wrong. And so at full ketosis, with this amazing fuel running through our bodies, only 30% of our energy needs are met by using ketones as a fuel. Only 30%. Right. And the brain, which, you know, absolutely adores ketones, you know, super fuel for the brain, even at full ketosis only 60 to 70% of the brain's needs can be met with ketones, and the brain still wants 30 to 40% glucose, sugar, right. as a fuel. So you take that human data from you know, prestigious researchers, um, and you go, well, okay, it's not a super fuel, but you know, it's doing some really cool things, and if it's not a super fuel, what the heck is it doing? So it turns out that it's not a super fuel, sorry folks, uh, but it's a super signaling molecule. And signaling molecules basically communicate information to cell membranes, to my interest, mitochondria. It's my favorite word, by the way. I just want you to know that. I, I want to have a t-shirt made, forgive, excuse my mouth, that says don't fuck with my mitochondria, because I feel like it's the one of the essences of like us being healthy. Well, and you're absolutely right. And that was, you know, the, the principle of the energy paradox is, you know, guess what, folks, you, your, your mitochondria are screwed. And that's why you feel like crap. And that's why you're tired, because... And this is actually a good segue, because you are right. Without our mitochondria, we are screwed. Um, so ketones came about originally when we were starving, when we had nothing to eat. And lucky for us, most of our functions can be done using free fatty acids that come out of fat cells when we're starving. 
And there's only one problem. Free fatty acids can be used by every cell in the body except the brain because we've got this crazy blood-brain barrier that they're too big to get across quickly. So that's a problem. And your brain would just kind of quit if you starve. So free fatty acids, by luck or design, can go to the liver where they're converted into small, short fatty acids that are water-soluble, ketone bodies, and the liver can't use them, even though one famous keto author said the liver loves ketones. Not. I did find that interesting that the one place that they're made and converted can't use it. Yeah, can't use it. Yeah. So they just throw them out. Here, take this. And luckily, they can get to the brain, and the brain can use them as an emergency fuel. Um, and function. So that's that's great. But I the, the shocker was when I read a paper by Martin Brand in 2000, and it's a short paper, and everybody should read it, called Uncoupling to Survive. And what he proposed is that if we're starving to death, to get back to your point, if the mitochondria die... Uh, the mitochondria make ATP. If the mitochondria don't make it, that's the end of you. Yeah. It, who cares about your muscles? Who cares about your brain? Who cares about anything else? If, you, if the mitochondria don't make it, that's, that's it. So the mitochondria, if you're starving, the ketones actually tell the mitochondria, signal the mitochondria that Unless something changes, uh, you got to protect yourself because everything we can tell is you're starving to death and you don't know when your next meal is coming. Mm. So protect your cells at all costs. So what do the mitochondria do? They do two amazing things. Number one, making ATP is really hard work. It's very damaging to the mitochondria. Mm. The more energy the mitochondria is asked to make, the more damage is done. It's not very fair, but that's what happens. But the mitochondria are very much like a pressure cooker. And a pressure cooker works great to cook food quickly, but if the pressure gets too high, it explodes, like my mother did when I was young. It's really fun. Um, it probably be hard to have a smart kid like you. But anyway, go so ahead. So anyhow, so we have a pop-off valve on the pressure cooker mm -hmm. that when the pressure gets too high, you know, the steam comes out and you lower the pressure. So mitochondria have pop-off valves so that if the damage gets too high, if the work gets too high, they can pop off this pressure. And this, these pressure release valves um, are like emergency exits that I talk about in the book, and they're controlled by what are called uncoupling proteins. Now, I didn't make up the word uncoupling. Uh, I wish there was a better well, word. Wasn't like Gwyneth Paltrow? No, I'm just yeah, kidding. Yeah, no, no. I'm joking, or, the doctor. Uh, <laughs> believe it or not, I had that in the book and the editor cut it. <laughs> well, you did say it was modern Hollywood way of breaking up. Yes. But anyway. <laughs> anyhow. And Gwyneth's a friend of mine, so we, uh, she would have gotten the joke anyhow. <laughs> totally. No. So what happens is, so the mitochondria, when ketones are present, the mitochondria are signaled to, oh, oh boy, you protect yourself at all costs. So the mitochondria are actually signaled to do less work, to take the pressure off. And how they do that is they let off steam. Now, in letting off steam, they actually produce less ATP. Now, that seems really stupid if you're starving to death. You mm -hmm. would think 
that you ought to become really efficient, get last every last little ATP out of every molecule of sugar or fat there is, but they do the exact opposite. They literally throw away calories. Right. And you go, what? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, you call it wasting calories, yeah. which I love. Yeah. But, in fact, the wasting of calories is actually how you lose weight on a ketogenic diet. You actually perform a caloric bypass surgery on your mitochondria. Now, why would you do that? Well, here comes part two. Making energy is really hard work, and mitochondria have to protect themselves. So I like you use the analogy of a dog sled pulled by one dog. Yeah, the dog can pull the sled. Uh, it won't go very fast, and the dog will get pretty tired out, and you won't go very far. But what if we take five additional dogs and hook it to the sled, and now we have a six-dog sled? Those dogs will pull that sled a lot faster. They'll go a lot farther because each dog has to only do one-sixth of the work. Bad part of it is six dogs eat more food than one dog. So you have to feed them more in exchange. So what we now know is that ketones signal mitochondria to not only do less work, but make, in this anal analogy, five more mitochondria to share the workload that's less for everybody. So in the end, you end up making actually at least as much ATP, perhaps more, but you have to go through more calories to get the result. So the win is the mitochondria gets protected, gets lots of its friends involved, and the more we know about getting more mitochondria involved, uncoupling each mitochondria so each mitochondria doesn't have to work very hard, the longer you live and the better you live. In the book, you talk about, uh, you know, that's why, for example, fasting or certain other things will signal this activity. But maybe we could just give a, an overview of other examples of things that do this signal. Because I think what was really important in the differentiation for me was it wasn't, okay, this fat, this good source of fat is making this thing that makes me only burn fat. It was that it's acting as a signal for something to happen. Exactly. So what are the other signals? Like what are other things that create this signal? Well, so going back to the ketogenic diet, the ketogenic diet was actually coined in 1930 at the Mayo Clinic right. as a diet for children with seizure disorders. Right. And interestingly enough, uh, kids were put on an 80% fat diet, 10% carbohydrates, 10% protein, and their seizures actually were well controlled. Now, uh, you and I as parents and me as a grandparent know that it's really impossible to get kids to avoid carbohydrates. Huh. And you and I know that it's virtually impossible to get adults to avoid carbohydrates. Yeah. In fact, we're actually hardwired. Because right, we have choices too. Like yeah. with a kid, you could kind of for a while, at for least when while. they're little. But that's the other thing is it's confusing as a parent, obviously not processed foods, but sometimes you want to let kids grab what they think they want because you feel like they know best. Because they're still healthy. They'll eat until they're full. They yeah. don't usually overeat when they're little, little. 
And if you put stuff in front, they eat the foods that call them, I think. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so, but, so, so go anyhow, ahead. So and when you say we're hardwired because it becomes part of our culture and our eating vernacular. No, actually, researchers from the University oh. of Sydney have proven that all animals actually have a genetic hardwiring to seek out carbohydrates. All animals, including humans, and they found those genes. So we are hardwired to look for carbohydrates. So 60% of people who go on a ketogenic diet by one month quit. Um, they either never get into ketosis, as I point, point out in the book, or they just can't avoid carbohydrates. So enter the ketogenic diet for kids. It turns out that uh, the, this high-fat diet for kids, um, was get, they got rid of it when drugs came along. Problem with drugs is that the kids' brains didn't work very well. Mm -hmm. So people got the idea in the 1990s that, hey, there's other ways to make ketones rather than avoiding carbohydrates and proteins. And it just so happens that medium-chain triglycerides, MCT oil, mm -hmm. is instantly taken to your liver and instantly converted to ketones, regardless of what you eat. So these researchers with kid seizure disorders said, gosh, what if we put kids and gave them MCT oil in salad dressings, in their smoothie? We could give them a whole lot more carbohydrates and we could give them a whole lot more protein. And I bet you we'd get the same result. And sure enough, they found that an MCT-based ketogenic diet mm -hmm. gave the same results as this miserable high-fat diet. And so when I saw that, I realized, I looked back at my books, and my ketogenic diet has used MCT oil from day one. And Don't you love it when, you're, when you get a little also lucky sometimes? Oh, yeah. And I'm going, <laughs> well, you know, I knew it made ketones, like, but I said, like, yeah. <laughs> and so I'm going, gee, you know, how can I give, be giving my, my patients on a ketogenic diet, you know, these carbohydrate-containing foods? Why is it working so well? And yeah. I profile a young lady in the book who, you know, she just kind of kept losing weight. And it's like, why is it working so well? So we were, you know, uncoupling mitochondria with MCT oil. Now, here's the, here's the great punchline. Um, Medium-chain triglycerides are named after the Latin word for goat, which is capra. So there's capric acid, caprylic acid. And you go, well, why would you name... MCT oils after a goat. It turns out that goat milk is 30% medium-chain triglycerides, as is sheep milk. Cow milk, no. Uh, buffalo mozzarella, yeah. So glory be, yeah. now we could get you know goat yogurt or sheep yogurt or goat or sheep kefir or goat cheese, sheep cheese, and have a bite of that and will produce ketones, you know, having a, a wonderful snack. In fact, I, I hate to say this, but the beauty of MCTs are that you could have a giant fresh fruit salad, please don't, uh, but have a couple tablespoons of MCT oil and you'll be in ketosis, despite the fact that you've eaten a huge carbohydrate load. You do, you do mention in your book reverse juicing. So yes. I want to say, um, Dr. Gundry is like, if you have to do it, Juice it, go for it, and then eat the stuff that's left over. Don't drink the the actual liquid. So I right. I, I thought, well, because it's fiber and all these other things. So I, I, I really 
appreciated that. And you talk about that ketosis, there's sort of like all these types of, it's like dirty ketosis, clean ketosis. Um, you know, it gets, it does get confusing. It does. And I do appreciate the club analogy. I think people will really understand very quickly um, when you're in a crowded club and, you know, security and the bodyguards. And, and, and so again, it makes that uh, very achievable. I would like if you could talk about a study, I believe it was uh, Dr. DiCapo or... Um, Raphael DiCapo. Correct. I thought that this was really an, a really important thing to revisit about... Okay, we're all given the same calories. Do you eat them? Do you graze throughout the day? Do you have a very short window of eating, or do you have sort of a six, seven hour window? Um, and what they what they found? Yeah. So um, in in longevity research, um, the gold standard has always been calorie restriction, and you know reducing somebody's calories by thirty percent a day is really the only proven way to extend lifespan in really all animals tested until the rhesus monkey experiments at the University of Wisconsin and the National Institutes of Aging. And that study was highly debated, and I was part of the debate about uh, the University of Wisconsin people, their their rhesus monkeys lived longer. Um, the, the NIA's rhesus monkeys didn't live any longer than control animals. And everybody's arguing, well, what is it? It's the protein with sugars. And everybody's arguing. And they're frustrated, too. These studies take a long time. Yeah, these took over 35 <laughs> years. 35 years. Yeah. So Rafael DiCapo, who's a researcher at the NIH, and I've been a fellow at the NIH. So he says, you know, I think we've got this calorie restriction thing all wrong. He says, because in the lab, we would control when the food was put into the animal's cage. And if you were getting 30% food, less food every day, then when that food arrived, you'd be really hungry and you'd eat it very quickly. As opposed to if you were getting a full calorie load, you'd, you know, kind of pick at it and say, yeah, okay, I'll have some now and I'll have some later. So he said, I think it's actually, we've missed the point that it's actually the time period that these animals are fasting every 24 hours that's making the difference. Mm -hmm. So he designed a study at the NIH using rats, and he said, okay, we're going to give these guys either the University of Wisconsin diet or the National Institutes of Aging diet. Because one was a little more processed, right? Yeah, or one was something? a little more sugar, one that's was right. actually a little more protein, right. and I mean, really very opposite. And he said, so we're going to divide them into, th into three groups. One group's going to get a full day's supply of each every 24 hours. One group's going to get calorie restricted. They're going to get 30% out. And we're going to put that in their cage at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The third group, we're going to give them a full day's supply, but it's going in their cage at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And what they found was, of course, the all-day munchers eat all day. The calorie-restricted guys, they gobbled their food up really quickly. In fact, the high-sugar group, their food was gone in one to two hours. You know, boom. And like anybody with a kid would know. Right. The, the ones that had a full day's ration actually ate most of their food in 10 to 12 hours. So they were fasting. Oh, longer than I thought. Yeah. They were fasting about 12 hours, which is a very long time for a rat. So when they broke it down, they found that the calorie-restricted mice 
And the time-restricted mice had metabolic flexibility. Their mitochondria could use sugar and immediately switch to burning fat when the need arise. The all-day munchers didn't matter the diet. They had no metabolic flexibility. They couldn't make a shift. And as the book points out, boy, if you're not metabolically flexible, you're screwed in, yeah. in every aspect. Now, here's the best punchline. The calorie-restricted guys lived about 30% longer. No surprise. But the time-restricted guys, even though they were getting a full caloric load of the regular one, they lived 11% longer, eating the same amount of food. And so that's 10 years in human terms, 10 good years. And these time-restricted animals didn't have any production of beta amyloid and tau in their tissues. Mm -hmm. And most listeners know those are the two hallmarks of Alzheimer's. And so, wow, just compressing the time period that these animals ate gave them all the food they wanted and additional punchline, it didn't matter yeah. whether they were eating the high sugar food or the high protein food. It made no difference whatsoever with one exception. All these animals eventually died. The animals that got the high sugar diet mm -hmm. actually mostly died of liver cancer. So pay attention. Yeah. I, uh, I'm curious for you, you're, you're busy. You have a, a big load. I know you have a good practice, meaning your own personal practice, but do you have anything that you support your cognitive function with, be it in food or in supplementation, uh, just to help support your brain. And that reminds me too, when you talked about, you know, kind of scraping your brain with exercise, uh, we'll get into that. But I was just wondering if you personally had any, anything that you did to ex to boost yourself or, or just sort of all supported in your lifestyle? Well, the, the exciting thing about this book uh, is um, getting back to uh, Martin Brand. Martin Brand went on to show that if you look at super old people who are healthy at 105, they have the most uncoupled mitochondria of anybody. And so then, speaking of brain health, what you want to do is you want to uncouple the mitochondria in your brain. And it turns out that brain cells, neurons, actually do best at a much higher temperature. And uncoupling of mitochondria actually produces heat. That's, uh, okay. for instance, uh, you have a line of coffee. Mm -hmm. um, so most of us, when we have a cup of coffee, notice that we might get a little glistening on our forehead. Even an iced coffee might do that. Right. And it turns out that coffee has both caffeine and polyphenols, both of which are very active uncouplers. And it turns out, as you know, that coffee drinkers, particularly people who drink about five cups of coffee a, a day, have much reduced dementia and even Parkinson's compared to non-coffee drinkers, dramatically reduced. So to answer your question, uh, I, from January through June for the last 23 years, uh, fast 22 out of 24 hours a day. I eat all my calories between five and seven o'clock at night. Now I break, I do that for five days a week. Okay. So January through June. Yep. And why do I do that? Because well, way back when that was when there was no food. Right. 
So you're just getting back into your biological self and getting into harmony. Yeah, with this that. was my dumb research at Yale. So I just, I just follow my dumb book. <laughs> and so you, you, you have caffeine. So you don't, but you don't break your fast because yeah, you, you just you're not eating fat or right. going through digestion. So what if you're traveling and working and you you sort of get a pang at? I would imagine eleven o'clock would be a hard hour. You just ride it through or have a coffee or well, after a few days, you 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 do not have hunger pain. You're just over it. Yeah. And there's a bunch of tricks that I talk about in the book. Yeah. Brilliant Chinese study of a few years ago. They took uh individuals and put them on either a seven-day or a fourteen-day water fast. Nothing. And half the group got a hundred calories a day of prebiotic fiber. Now, hopefully most people know prebiotic fiber, we can't digest. We cannot absorb it. We cannot break it down. But the gut microbiome says, yummy, yummy, yummy. Uh, it's feeding time. Mm -hmm. And they eat that prebiotic fiber. So what they found was the guys who had the prebiotic fiber, they had no hunger pains for either 7 or 14 days. Whereas the other guys are going, you know, holy cow, how, how am I going to get through this? The other thing they found that these guys who got the prebiotic fiber, their brains worked much better because of the gut microbiome that I've talked about in the last couple of books is actually making these compounds that feed your brain like butyrate. And butyrate also uncouples your mitochondria. Yeah, you talk a lot about butyrate in the, oh, in the yeah. book. You like butyrate. Oh, butyrate is, oh, is, butyrate. is, is, is butyrate is your buddy. Yeah, <laughs> butyrate is good. You have you do have a, a a list of things: polyphenols, dietary fibers, fermented foods, uh, cold temperature, hot temperature. You give an entire list of things that signal uncoupling. Right. But before I forget, June, so July to December. So are, then are you party I, hardy? Like no, what's happening? Uh, huh? I, I, I still don't eat breakfast. Wait, did your wife do this with you? You, you know, actually, she's <laughs> been kind of laughing at me for 23 years. <laughs> That's how you stay married. Yeah. And so, uh, and, you know, she still carries kind of this, this marathon runner me mentality that, you know, I got to. The harder, the better? I, 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 no, I got to load up on carbs every three oh, hours. Oh, yeah, 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 you have carbo loading. Yeah, I got carbo loading. <laughs> I, you know, I, I have to. And so when I wrote this book, uh, and kind of, you know, started talking to her about this. And she said, there's, there's real things here, isn't there? She said, you're not just doing this for fun. And I thought, come on, you know, did well, we put, go through all this misery because I was having fun? I don't think so. And she said, okay, um, I'm going to start doing this. And so now she doesn't eat breakfast. She doesn't eat lunch. And we have our, you know, afternoon, evening meal together. Yeah. And she said, Man, I, I had no idea how easy this was. I would, you know, I, why didn't you tell me this 23 years ago? I said, I've been telling you for 23 years. We have a saying in our house, an expert is somebody who lives a mile away. Um, so you, you know, they're going to buy true. your books, but you're, you know, your wife and children, they're, they're supposed to resist against that. So in, in July through December, you'll maybe have lunch? Yeah. So okay. I'll have lunch. But you know, it's funny, last year I, I decided to just kind of keep pushing. So I went nine months doing it. Okay. But it's so it's called the one meal a day diet, the OMAD diet. Yeah. But I like to break it up on the weekends so I don't go mad, right? Yeah. Um, and there's a very good point. I think the point in the book is you do not want to be in continuous ketosis. It's one of the dumbest things people yeah. can do. And you smell really bad. 
And the just be clear when you go to your gym, people will be moving wide. Yeah, it's not healthy. You said it metabolically flexible. We're supposed to be able, it's like being people as an organism, we're supposed to be able to adapt. Hey, we made a plan, we have to change it. Are you going to freak out? No, you're going to adapt. And that's what this whole thing is your body is set up to be at its best when you can. Yeah, I mean, we were not designed to be in continuous ketosis. Can you imagine if we were on a keto diet? As a, you know, as a as a caveman, and you know, we made a buffalo kill, or we found a, a fruit tree, and you know, everybody's gathering around <laughs> and getting their part. And, you know, and I'm going, oh, gee, you know, just get me a little bite because I'm I want to stay in ketosis, or <laughs> oh no, I'm only going to have you know three berries. You guys, you know, get the basket. Really? <laughs> we wouldn't do that. Are you crazy? We go. <laughs> yeah, get what you can yeah. when you can get it. Because guess what? We're yeah. not going to get any for probably in the next month. Right. Right. Now, autophagy, um, you'll hear a lot of people like maybe autophagy doesn't really start to occur at what, 30 hours? Is that right? Do we do we even know? Because a lot. it's so interesting since intermittent fasting has become popular, people are like 12 hours, 18 hours, uh, you know, once a month, one day a week autophagy, how long is that? If you're middle-aged, like if you're my age as a female, you're not supposed to fast as long. Um, So So the best study of really where's this time window Mm. uh, has been done by Dr. Matheson and his colleagues at the NIH. But the best study for people to wrap their heads around is the Italian cyclist study. So you're a famous athlete. Uh, they took Italian cyclists and put them on a training table. And most people know what a training table is. This is the food you're going to get, guys. They put them on a training table for three months. They all had to eat the exact same food. One group they ate in a 12-hour eating window. They had breakfast at 8 o'clock in the morning, lunch at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. They had to finish dinner at 8 o'clock at night. 12-hour eating window. The other group, same food. Breakfast, break fast at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, lunch at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and then they had to finish dinner at 8 o'clock. Same calories. Seven-hour eating window. Followed for three months. The athletic performance was the same. Only the seven-hour eating window group lost weight, even though they were eating the exact same food. And here's the best part. A lot of us in longevity follow a marker called insulin-like growth factor, IGF-1. We follow it because, quite frankly, super, super old people have low insulin-like growth factor. People who are going to get cancer have high insulin-like growth factors, as a general rule. Only the seven-hour eating window guys dropped their insulin-like growth factor dramatically. There was no change in the 12-hour eating window. Mm. So here's why. We, if we have metabolic flexibility and we stop eating, after about eight hours, we will start to trickle out ketones out of our liver. By 12 hours, the ketones have ramped up. So the 12-hour eaters, um, they would produce a little bit of ketones, but then the minute they were ramping up, that would be the end of it. That would stop. The seven-hour eating window guys, they had another five hours of exposure 
to the uncoupling effect of ketones before they then stopped making ketones. So they got an additional benefit of uncoupling that the other guys didn't. Yeah. So they did a caloric bypass, number one, and number two, they signaled their mitochondria that boy, we better be the best we can. We should get rid of any cells that aren't pulling their own weight, autophagy. And, you know, because that cell doesn't look like he's really contributing. Yeah, get um, rid of that yeah, guy. Yeah, you're, you're <laughs> out of here. You know, self-destruct, would you? Yeah. Yeah, so here's a human study that we can really relate to. And certainly in my patient groups, uh, when I ask them to start, you know, time-restricted feeding, try to get to noon, mm -hmm. we watch their insulin-like growth factors plummet, regardless of what else they're eating, which is the exciting part. That's really exciting because it's very clear. Yeah, they go. You're not like measuring something and changing something. And does this have a carbohydrate? Is this a lectin? This is very clear. Right. This is all we ask them to do. Now, if I recall, you did say that the there were high performance athletes that needed more oxygen. Is this right? Yes. Um, if they if they were in in ketosis, right. in continuous ketosis. Okay. Yeah. So these were these have been several race walker studies. And, you know, race walkers um, are high-performance athletes. Yeah. Um, people tend to... They're nuts. Yeah, I mean, they're really nuts. Yeah, but I mean, that, that's, that's tough. Okay. That's yeah. tough. Um, yeah. What, what are they walking so fast away from? But anyway. So anyhow, um, these guys, uh, they could do the same performance as people who were using carbohydrates for fuel, but they actually burned more oxygen. They actually had to breathe faster to generate the same athletic performance. And as someone who doesn't particularly want to breathe much faster to improve athletic performance, it's like when you really start looking at the literature, you go, hmm. And, you know, uh, uh, Finney and Vogel, uh, who are the great uh, ketogenic uh, athletic performance guys, showed that athletes, uh, their performance dives uh, at about three days to two weeks and you have to get keto adapted and oh, yet yeah. Cahill and Veach's athletic performance showed that believe it or not your maximum keto utilization is three days into a ketogenic diet mm. so wait a minute if you're maximally using ketones at three days and yet your athletic performance has tanked at three days there's something wrong with the traditional ketogenic diet as an athletic enhancing program. Well, you in Unlocking the Keto Code really uh, break all of this down from brown fat to white fat, beige fat. I mean, we get into all of it. The other, something really quickly um, that I wanted to point out was you talked about MCT versus olive oil. You like olive oil. Part of the success of the Mediterranean diet, even though it's probably not really a Mediterranean diet, is olive oil. True. But you, you really sort of talked about the favor of MCT oil over olive oil. Yeah, there's actually been two human studies looking at using an MCT-based oil uh, diet versus an olive oil-based diet, mm -hmm. identical calories. In both studies, only the MCT-based group lost weight compared to the olive oil diet. Now, there's a lot of benefits of olive oil that I talk about in totally. terms of the polyphenols. But one of the best things you can do is you mix your MCT oil and your olive oil. And I have several great salad dressing recipes that do just that in the book. The final thing on that is it is really hard to go from 
eating breakfast at seven o'clock and the next day eating breakfast at noon. Most people fall flat on their face mm. because they don't have metabolic flexibility. So with my patients, as I talk about in the book, I hold your hand and say, okay, look, I don't want you to have breakfast at noon, but if you have breakfast at seven, what do you say next week we have breakfast at eight? Come on, you can make it an hour. Yeah. We'll take the weekend off, you know, have a nice time. Next week, you made it to eight. Come on, we're going for nine this week. Come on, it's just one more hour. And so each week, and we take the weekend off. So each week we step up. Uh, it's like learning a new exercise. It's yeah, like it's a it's a gradual load. Yeah, a gradual learning yeah, experience. That's and right. we find it's really easy once we have patients do that, is then, you know, by five weeks, they're now doing great, you know, time-restricted feeding, inter intermittent fasting. And then we can show them mm. in a couple of months, you know, number one, their weight goes down. But number two, look at your insulin-like growth factor. Look at this marker of you basically de-aging. And they go, yeah, okay, I can. I'm in. Yeah, I'm in. Yeah. And then there's lots of tricks that I talk about. So yeah. you can have, uh, you know, a tablespoon of MCT. You can actually have a handful of nuts and it won't break your fast, which is exciting. Very. Yeah, yeah I mean, it really is. No, believe me, not, a handful of anything when you're fasting is very exciting. Yeah, <laughs> you know, my friend at USC, Dr. Walter Longo, has actually shown this in humans mm. that you will stay in ketosis using one of his bars, which is basically a nut bar. Yeah. And yeah, so that's great news. So this book, um, I, I and also I, I just want to finish up. I get a lot of women who are sort of, you know, they think it's a death march when you turn a certain age and their hormones and things like that. And I do believe all of this supports those processes. Like you said, does it show up as skin cancer or cancer or diabetes or whatever? It's still really the root cause of most of this is very similar. And yes. so I, I appreciate this as a tool. And the other thing, um, and we're going to wrap this up, you even get into ROSs and other things that can, you know, kind of impact you in a negative way to look out for. So this is not just Elaine talking about, okay, uncoupling and, and ketosis, but sleep and, you know, all these other things around which really impact uh, your overall, your mitochondrial function and your health, you know, the mitochondrial health. Um, but your hard work and your curiosity and your ability to break it down, um, I think is also a, a really great example. And I, and I think something else, and maybe you could write your next book on this, is um, you're, you're very connected. You're connected to your family. You can see it. I can see it when you talk about your wife. And I think that this is also a really, you know, pivotal part of longevity and health and happiness. And so uh, maybe in another five years, um, you can sort of talk about connection. I don't know. Sounds like you, good idea. Good luck trying to find the science, though, on that. Well, that's, yeah, a, that, that's a moving target. I'll have my wife write. You know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Justin, last chance. Any last question? Um, since you're into, you know, you're reading everything and always, you know, what's, is there any new tech or studies that you've read that you just, you're excited about or looking into right now? Uh, tech studies? Yeah. Or, just like, like for medical, medical, like, medical uh, calibration or, or documentation. Well, actually here's something for people to think about. Um, we know that actually viruses, um, are probably one of the little known causes of leaky gut. And there's more and more evidence now that 
the coronavirus clearly is capable of causing leaky gut. Uh, it actually looks for gut membranes. You know, a third of people who develop coronavirus infection present with diarrhea or gut issues. Wow. And so I and others are, are pretty convinced that part of long COVID is that you now have produced leaky gut, and that's what now drives the rest of these symptoms. And one of the scary things is, um, which we can now measure, is that if you have leaky gut, there's a very good chance that you have leaky brain. Yeah. And so these women, particularly women, uh, although I have a number of men with brain fog, uh, when we look, they always have leaky gut, number one, but the vast majority of them have leaky brain. Yeah. And they actually have uh, autoimmune attack against yeah. their brain, which is scary stuff. And it becomes a cycle. You feel unwell in your mind, then you grab some weird stuff to eat to soothe yep. yourself, and you just get in this weirdest cycle. I want to finish this with one fact that I thought was really cool in your book, that your body produces 140 pounds of ATP every day. Yeah, every day. Yeah. 140 pounds. It's awesome. And everybody goes, what? wait a minute, that's impossible. <laughs> you know, I don't weigh 140 pounds. And, you know, I don't eat 140 pounds. But yeah, we actually, um, we spend that ATP uh, every day. And that's a rest. I mean, you know, a high-performance athlete like you or Laird is, yeah. you, you, you're cashing out the bank every well, day. You know? Laird is. I'm just over here, you know, hanging on. So the book is Unlocking the Keto Code, uh, Dr. Gundry. And for everyone listening, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening. And if you'd like, rate, subscribe, and leave us a review. All of my music was graciously done by Frank Zumo and Tom Thacker. If you want to see some of the behind the scenes action, just follow me at Gabby Reese. And remember, don't miss new episodes every Monday. 